Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is uh, Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you're with us. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open. As we just read, we will be in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. We'll be finishing that uh, this morning. And as you turn there, I want to tell you about my uh, son, Cannon. Not like the Remember Goliath artillery, but like the canon of uh, Scripture. My son is uh, two years old, and uh, he is uh, adorable, but... We recently uh, started trying to potty train him, and it's been a mess, literally and figuratively, all right? I probably would have an easier time teaching him like introductory Hebrew or something than just grasping the concept of going to the potty in the potty. And, uh, and so this is a new experience for us, all right? We have, a, we have an older daughter, uh, but for whatever reason, she just picked up on it. Like within one day, she was uh, accident-free. It's been like two weeks for my son, and he's still every day having, uh, having accidents. And, uh, and so the, the, the other day, uh, my wife, Casey, was in the kitchen, and she was uh, talking to a friend. It was actually a, a, another elder's uh, wife who was over, and they were visiting, and they were standing in the kitchen, and, uh, and they were talking. My kids were playing elsewhere, and suddenly, Cannon appeared in the kitchen, and he said, here you go, Mommy, and he held out his hand. And, uh, and Casey was in the midst of the uh, conversation, so she kind of just mindlessly started to reach out her hand, assuming my son had some trash or something like that he just wanted to throw away. But as she held out her hand, she at the last second looked to see that Cannon was handing her, not trash, in a sense it was trash. If you're following along with the kind of context, how I set this up, you probably have some sort of idea. My adorable two-year-old son, who I love so much, was holding in his hand, how shall I put this delicately, a poop ball. I've never said that phrase before <laughs> on stage. I didn't ever think I would. But he had, uh, he had gone number two uh, in his pants, uh, fell out through his underwear onto the ground, and he thought, what I need to do with that is I need to go and I need to hand that to my mom. Now, obviously, his mom didn't want that, quote-unquote, gift, right? Nobody wants that gift. That wasn't a good gift. And I wish that were some sort of isolated incident, but apparently, almost every day while I'm at work, my son does the same thing. He goes to the bathroom, and he picks it up, and he hands it uh, to, uh, to my wife. He'll kind of disappear for a few moments, and then he'll reappear with some holiday joy. And uh, <laughs> so I'll tell you that for two reasons. One, please pray for us. It's... Uh, Two weeks of potty training is, is terrible. But the second is because our passage today is about gifts. In fact, uh, all of chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians, uh, all of those chapters are dealing with the subject of gifts. And the reality is that all of God's gifts to his children are good. But the problem is, in our sin, we have a tendency to not necessarily believe that. We think that some of the gifts that God gives us are gross, they're not good for us. We think they're unbecoming or whatever it might be. So let's pray and then we'll dive in together and see how Paul addresses the issue of gifts. I ask you first just to pray for yourself. Maybe you have expectations of this text that we're going to get into some deep theological questions or whatever it might be. Maybe you come in and you're anxious or you're afraid or you've had a long week. We just pray that the, the Spirit would encourage you and edify you. And then would you pray that for those around you as well? 
And then lastly, would you pray for me? Father, I pray that you would bless the proclamation of your word, that you would be uh, honored, that you would be glorified, that uh, the glory of your son would be uh, appreciated, and, uh, and that you would encourage us, and you would edify us, and you would strengthen us. We pray these things because you're good and you do good, so we ask in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. In order to understand this, we've got to go back. What's the first rule of hermeneutics, the science of biblical interpretation? Context, right? The first rule of hermeneutics is not you don't talk about hermeneutics. The first rule of hermeneutics is that context is king, right? Words don't have meaning apart from a sentence, and a particular verse of the Bible doesn't have meaning apart from its larger context. So if we want to understand what's happening in verse 27, we need to know what's happening around it. In particular, we need to know what's happening immediately prior to this, and Jared preached it last week. When Jared preached it last week, we saw uh, this metaphor uh, for the church, and that's going to bleed over into our text today. Scripture uses lots of metaphors for the church. For instance, the church is called the bride of Christ. That's why our future hope is called the quote-unquote consummation and why we await for the wedding supper of the Lamb. The church is also called a family. All right? That's why we are to consider each other brothers and sisters. And given that the Bible was originally written within an agrarian context, there are lots of farming images or metaphors that the, uh, the Scripture is going to use of the church. It's compared to branches on a vine or to an olive tree or to a field of crops or to a harvest. It's also compared to a building and to a temple and to a group of priests and the, build, uh, the pillar and buttress of truth. And each of those images is going to add its own little uh, nuance to help us kind of understand the beautiful complexity of this reality we call the church. That complexity is kind of like looking through a prism. Each image, each metaphor of the church uh, helps refract a different perspective such that the, so that we don't have this really simplistic view of what the church is, but rather we have one which is really glorious and really rich and robust. So these images aren't in competition, they're complementary. Each of them shows this uh, unique nuance of the people of God. So God provides all of these images or metaphors of the church, but one of the most common metaphors or images of the church is a body. And we saw that uh, in detail last week. As a human body is composed of various parts or members, right? the head, the feet, the hands, the eyes, whatever it might be, as the human body is composed of various parts or members, so is the church. And as each body part has a unique function that contributes to the overall uh, uh, flourishing of that human body, likewise for the church. A body with two hearts and no brain uh, isn't healthy, neither is a body with two brains and no heart. So that analogy that Paul introduces in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that analogy holds true for the church as well. Each member of the body contributes something that is unique, something that is distinctive. No part is uh, dispensable, and neither is any part uh, 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 independent, right? Instead, there is this idea that there is unity, but there's not uniformity. There is unity, but there's also interdependence, and there is diversity. 
All right? And so we see today in verse 27, we see a continuation of that same sort of theme, but with this added sort of nuance. Paul takes this, this metaphor, this, this image for the church at large, and he begins to really apply it particularly to the Corinthians. Notice he says, you are the body. Now that's somewhat fascinating. If you've been following along in 1 Corinthians as we've been walking through it, if you are familiar with what's going on in Corinth, this would be really shocking to you that he takes this image of something that's supposed to be good and pure and lovely and so forth and he applies it to Corinth. All right, Remember what's happening in Corinth. People are quarreling. People are seeing temple prostitutes. People aren't engaging in church discipline. They're suing each other. They're getting drunk during communion. They're fighting over the gifts. They're fighting over who their favorite apostle is. And on and on we could go. This isn't healthy. Imagine if you went to a doctor and the doctor runs a bunch of tests. And at the end, the doctor walks back into the room and says, well, all of your tests have come back and almost nothing in your body seems to be working correctly. All right, good luck. It's kind of what the doctor says. That's Corinth. It's an absolute mess. And yet Paul says it's still a church composed of various members. The diseased nature of this particular body doesn't change the fact that God has woven into it this principle, this principle of unity and uh, interdependence and diversity. Now when we, uh, as 21st century Americans, when we use the, the word diversity... When that, when that word is used in culture today, it's most often reduced simply to conversations about ethnicity and, and race. Uh, in fact, I googled diversity in the church, and every single result for at least a few pages, I didn't keep going after a few pages, every single result just dealt with the issue of racial or ethnic diversity. So according to our culture... A diverse, a diverse corporation or a diverse church or something like that is viewed in which, uh, as one in which there is this mix, this proper mix of various ethnicities, various races, or really to be more specific, what our culture is more obsessed with, the way that diversity is viewed today isn't just this proper mix of all kinds of various ethnicities, but rather it's just the conversation is reduced down to two, typically just white and black. And that kind of diversity is certainly good. In fact, there are uh, that, 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 that's certainly a, a good principle that, that Scripture is going to uh, uphold. Segregation is sinful. Separating from other believers simply on the basis of the, their skin color is egregiously wicked. And yet, that isn't the only, in fact, it's not even the primary way that Scripture is going to talk about diversity in fact, there are lots of different forms of diversity. A, a church can be entirely composed of people of one race or one skin color or one ethnicity, and yet they could actually be really faithful in being diverse in the biblical sense. For instance, when I visited churches in South Sudan or in China or in Cambodia or something, I'm generally the only white face in the room, and yet I would say that church can absolutely still be biblically diverse. They can have men and women. That's a form of diversity. They can have older persons and younger persons. That's diversity. They can have married people and singles. They can have rich and poor. They can have some degree of, uh, of theological diversity. But especially, they can have these diverse giftings. And this latter form of diversity, which is dis, uh, downplayed in our culture, this latter form of diversity is actually Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 12. As the ear 
has a different function from the foot, and yet both are necessary. That's the same in the church. We each have different gifts. We each have different gifts, and so we shouldn't be jealous of the gifts of others, nor should we wallow in pity for our own. We shouldn't covet what others have, nor despise what they don't. So if you were to list off the various members of your physical bodies, which I won't have you do because someone will shout out something inappropriate, but if you were to list off the various parts of the bodies, you know, you'd say head and heart and skin and spleen and kidney and liver, so forth. What about the spiritual body? What are some of the members of that body? What are some of the members of the church? And Paul will talk about that in verse 28. He says, And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. So here Paul is going to give us this, uh, this kind of sampling of some of the members of this spiritual body that is the church. And those members correspond to giftings. The word in Greek is charismata. In fact, chapters 12 through 14, as I mentioned before, chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians, all of that is to be read together as one unified section of this book dealing with the issue of spiritual gifts. And so as we look at this particular verse and then the larger context of, uh, of chapters 12 through 14, there are six things that I want you to see about gifts, six different things for you to see about the gifts. The first thing that you should know is that this list that you see in verse 28, neither this list nor any other list that you see in Scripture is intended to be exhaustive or comprehensive. There are a number of places where Paul or Peter or whomever it is will list out various charismata, various spiritual gifts in Scripture, and none of them are the exact same. And I think that's intentional. Paul's intention isn't to say, this is the entirety of the list. This is the entirety of the way that the Spirit equips the people of God. But rather what he's doing is he's giving a few examples of the gifts. If you were a doctor, if you were someone who had studied anatomy, you could probably list out you know, all 206 or whatever it is, bones in the human body. You could probably list out all the various different muscle groups and so forth. But no one can really do that when it comes to every single spiritual gift. In fact, that's kind of Paul's point. Paul's overarching theological point in chapters 12 through 14 is that any opportunity, any ability that you have to serve the body is, in a sense, a charismata, a spiritual gift. So that's the first point. This list is not exhaustive. It's not comprehensive. Second thing to know is that no gift is unimportant but that some are more significant for the purpose of building up the body. That's kind of a two-part point. First part is to realize that no gift is superfluous. All right, we saw that last week. Even, this, the, even the weak, the unpresentable parts are indispensable. Right? The, the human body, we know, on the basis of modern science and so forth, we know that the human body actually has some parts that are somewhat unnecessary, like the appendix or or wisdom teeth or something. But the church doesn't have dispensable parts. The church doesn't have these parts that are unessential. Every single member of the church is important. Every gift is good, so nothing is unessential. 
But, and we'll see this especially as we move through uh, chapter 14, some gifts can be more helpful. Some gifts can be more helpful in regards to edifying and encouraging the body. That's why Paul is going to write later, we'll see it even uh, today, uh, about greater gifts. We'll talk about that more in detail in chapters 13 through 14. That's the second point. No gift is unimportant, but some are more significant for the purpose of building up the body. Third, gifts can be both both miraculous and mundane. When people, uh, in today's culture, when people talk about spiritual gifts, when you hear the word charismatic, when you hear the word charismata or something like that, people instantly think about miraculous gifts. They think of healing, they think of tongues, they think of prophecy and so forth. Notice, those are mentioned here in this list. Those are mentioned in the overarching context, but so is administration and helping and so forth. All right. Again, one of Paul's overarching theological concerns is to prevent us from having this reductionistic thinking about gifts. Having this, this view of gifts that reduces a gift to something on stage, like I'm what, what I'm doing right now. Or, or to say that all gifts are obviously miraculous, like tongues or something like that. In Paul's theology, any ability, any opportunity that you have to serve the body is, in a sense, a gift. Whether that's something really public, like what I'm doing right now, or whether that's miraculous, or whether that's mundane. So that's the third point. Fourth, we'll see that we all have gifts. Everyone has a gift. We've seen that in, uh, in the, uh, chapter 12. Now, maybe you don't know what your gifts are. Maybe you can't identify yourself in this list or any of the other lists. That's okay. In that case, don't go take an online gifts test. That's not going to be helpful. Rather, just look around you for a need. It's much less important that you know what your gift is it's much more important that you take advantage of opportunities to serve where there is a need. Identifying what your particular gift is will come in time as you begin to realize where certain areas bring you greater joy and then also as you walk in community with others who can help you see yourself more clearly. In other words, I think that most of evangelicalism has it wrong. Most of evangelicalism, what they do is if you want to know what your spiritual gift is, they, they tell you, look at yourself. They tell you, look inwardly. What do you enjoy? What do you not enjoy? All those kinds of things. I think the key is not to look at yourself, but rather to look at others and just start serving them and then trust the Spirit and the body of Christ to help you see where you're most needed and where you're most gifted. So we all have gifts, and it's not that important that you know what your gifts are. It is important that you look around you and are aware of the needs of others and that you serve them. Fifth point, God is the one who appoints the gifts. Let's camp here for a bit. It's God who orchestrates. It's God who empowers and apportions the gifts. And he does so as he deems wise and good. This isn't something you just see in verse 28. Although you do, you see it there. And God has appointed in the church. We've already seen it over the past two weeks. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Uh, verse 24b, but God has so composed the body, giving 
greater part, uh, honor to the part that lacked it. So God is the one who appoints, God is the one who, uh, who gives, who apportions the members uh, and their various gifts. The same way that we would say that the physical body didn't evolve by these random naturalistic processes like Darwin might have thought. The human body doesn't uh, uh, kind of evolve from single-celled organisms or from uh, ape-like creatures. We are deliberately, we are uniquely created by God. And the same is true for the spiritual body. It doesn't just randomly evolve into existence. Uh, We aren't uh, just kind of randomly gifted by a roll of the dice. Rather, God is the one who sovereignly apportions the gifts to his people. Why is that important? That's really important because realizing that reality, that God is the one who gives gifts to his people, realizing that protects us from doing exactly what the Corinthians were doing. Right? Jerry talked about that last week. Remember, there's division that's happening in the body at Corinth, which is really tragic and it's really ironic given that the purpose of the gifts are to unify the body. They're to strengthen the body. They're to nourish the body. But they're actually being used in this diseased church to weaken it. There were two problems that we saw addressed in uh, last week's text. Two sides of the same coin that, uh, that Jared addressed. The first, you have some members who were saying, I'm not good enough to be a part of the body. I'm just this little old spleen. Right? I'm not as cool as the brain or the heart or the hand or the eye. That was one danger. The other problem was that some kind of had what seems to be the opposite response. Some were thinking, I am cool. I am great. I am awesome. As a result, I don't need those other parts of the body. Look at me. I'm a head. I'm a heart. I'm self-reliant. So you have there within uh, Corinth these two dangers of self-pity and self-sufficiency. And those seem like those are polar opposites, but in reality, they're just two sides of the same coin. They all spring from the same heart, which is pride. And so recognizing that God is sovereign in the distribution of his gifts is the antidote to both forms of pride. When I'm jealous of others, what am I saying? I'm saying that God has done me a disservice. I'm saying God isn't a good father. That God hasn't given me good gifts, right? Tim can sing and I can't. Carl is handy and I'm not. Jared looks like the model for a a Barbie Ken doll, and I don't. In those moments, my pity is not just sociological. It's not just frustration with other people and the gifts they have. It's ultimately theological. I'm frustrated with God. I'm saying something about God. I'm blaspheming him. Or on the other end of the spectrum, when I'm boasting over others, what am I saying? I'm saying God hasn't given me these gifts. I'm saying I've earned them on my own. And again, that's the denial of God's sovereignty and his providence. But when we understand that God is the one who apportions and appoints the gifts to his people, then you not only celebrate the gifts of others, but you also use your own gifts to serve others. In other words, biblically, the reason you have gifts is not for yourself. You have gifts for us. Your gifts don't belong to you. Your gifts belong to the church collectively. God has gifted you 
to make this body or whatever body you're a part of stronger and more healthy. Which means that when you hoard your gifts, when you hoard your gifts, you aren't just robbing us. Ultimately, you're blaspheming God. So that's the fifth point. God is the one who gives gifts. And in light of that, the last point, the sixth point, is that God is the one who determines how the gifts should function. Uh, That makes sense. If God is the one who gives the gifts, he gets to define how they're used. For instance, when we gave uh, our daughter a bike for her birthday this past summer, we were able to establish a certain number of ground rules. You have to wear a helmet. You can't ride in the street without mom or dad. You can't leave it outside in the rain. Whatever it is, we're able to give these rules because we're the giver of the gifts. So as the givers of the gifts, with much more wisdom and much more knowledge than my little five-year-old girl, we have the right to prescribe how those gifts are to be used, as does God with the gifts that he gives. I know, I know no better description of this reality than Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What are the point of the gift? Why does God give the gifts that he gives? It's to make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice why God gives gifts to his people. It's not so that we would be celebrated. It's not so that we would uh, be able to show others how awesome we are. It's not so that we would be noticed and praised, but so the church would be built up. Some of us are hammers, some are nails, some are screwdrivers, some are drywall, but each of us makes a unique contribution in the edification of the body. So God has designed you like he has, he's gifted you like he has for his glory, and in particular for his glory in the encouragement and edification of the body. That's it. Now, with that in mind, all of that is kind of a, a, a preview, a, a theological um, idea of what gifts are. Let's look at the particular list of members and ministries that Paul mentions here in 1 Corinthians. The uh, particular list here seems to be divided, in a sense, into two parts. In the first part, he's going to name some particular members or roles or offices apostles, prophets, and teachers. Then in the second part, he's going to mention some of the functions of members or unique giftings, miracles, healings, helping, uh, etc. Let's look at the first part of the list. Notice that all three of these offices or roles or responsibilities are speaking gifts. What is it that distinguishes apostles and prophets and teachers from the second half of the list and those unique giftings? Well, these first three all speak the word of God. Why is that significant? Well, because Paul knows, and and all of the Bible testifies to the reality that the word of God is the foundation of the church. The church is called the pillar and the buttress of the truth. So there is this primacy to the word because it's the word which nourishes the body. One of my frequent 
probably frustrations, definitely observations about my kids, is that they eat a very below average amount of food and they get a very below average amount of sleep, yet they have a very above average amount of energy. It defies physics. I don't know how it works, all right? The body has energy as a result of sleep and eat, and they do neither. And yet they have unlimited supplies of, uh, of energy. Typically, if you don't eat, you get weak and you die. And the same is true for the church, right? Without a steady diet of the Word of God, the spiritual body gets weak as well. That's why the Reformers said that eating, in a sense, is what defines the church. What is the church? Well, the church historically is where the Word of God is preached and where the sacraments, like the Lord's Supper and so forth, are practiced. The church is, by definition, where we consume the Word of God. So these particular offices, these particular giftings are listed because they're concerned with the Word of God. They're concerned with the foundation and the fuel of the body. This is where we need to remind ourselves of the paradox of what we discussed earlier. No gift is unessential. No gift is dispensable, but some are more central for the underlying purpose of the church, especially those that concern the Word of God. Do you ever wonder why we do what we do here at Parkway on a Sunday? Why our, our, our worship service looks like it does? It's because it's attempting to be centered on the Word. What do we do each Sunday? We, we sing, but what do we sing? Right, we don't just sing the latest contemporary Christian song. We sing songs that are really rich and really deep in theological meaning. That's intentional, so that we were singing the Word of God. And then what? Well, then we pray. And what do we pray? We pray the Word of God. And then we read the Word of God, and then we exposit the Word of God, and then we demonstrate the Word of God through communion. Everything is about the Word of God. So we highlight the gifts which emphasize the Word. Now, I think there's something interesting that's happening here in 1 Corinthians 12, in that there is one other speaking gift that is mentioned here in this verse, and that is tongues. Notice, though, where it is in the list. It's at the very end. So why is it at the very end? I think the answer is because that's the problem in Corinth. The Corinthians are obsessed with the gift of tongues. To them, that's the most important gift. Right? If you have the gift of tongues, you don't need anything else. If you don't have the gifts of tongues, you're immature. That's kind of the Corinthian sort of idea. So they're obsessed with the gift of tongues. So Paul puts it last in order to kind of subvert their expectations. What they think is most important and most foundational, he lists last in order to at least make this rhetorical point. As Gordon Fee commentates, uh, comments, he says, it is listed last not because it is least, but because it is the problem. So with all that in mind, let's look at the actual list. Paul starts with the apostles and prophets. He tends to always start with the apostles and prophets. For example, Ephesians 4.11, which we read earlier. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So why does he start with the apostles and prophets? He answers that question in Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Notice this next phrase, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he starts with the apostles and the prophets because that is the undergirding of the body. Because the apostles and the prophets are the one who spoke the foundational word of the, uh, of the church. So he starts with that foundation. So who are the apostles? All right, The apostles, that was an uh, official office of the early church. And it was composed of men who were uniquely appointed as witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. We see that uh, a fundamental requirement of apostleship is that you had to meet two qualifications. Two qualifications to be considered an apostle. First, you had to have physically seen the resurrected Christ. And then second, you had to have been personally appointed by Christ. All right, so that's who the apostles were. So how many apostles were there? We don't really know. We have 12, the the early disciples, but then we have a number of others who kind of join that category. So probably 15 to 20, depending on how you classify Barnabas and Timothy and Apollos and Jesus' half-brothers like James and Jude and so forth. And so somewhere in that 15 to 20 range, although we don't really know. And then last question, are there apostles today? And I think the answer to that is no. That was a unique office in the early church for the foundation of the church because you had to uh, have been a witness to the resurrection and you had to have been personally commissioned by Christ. I don't think that there are any apostles today. They were indispensable in laying the foundation of the church through their teaching and their writing though. So there is a sense in which there is still apostolic witness today because we have their authoritative teaching laid out for us in Scripture. In fact, that was one of the, the early criteria for canonicity, for being included, for a book being included in the Bible, is that there must be some connection. It either had to have been written by an apostle or someone with a close relationship uh, with an apostle. And so I think that there are people with church giftings, church planning giftings today. And so that might be called an apostolic gifting or something like that, but I don't think that that term is helpful, and I certainly don't think it's helpful to call them apostles because I don't think that that gift uh, exists today because I think that's a, a form of authority that has now been supplanted by their apostolic teaching in Scripture. What about prophets? Are there prophets today? We're going to spend a lot of time talking about prophecy in just a few weeks so I'm not going to say much about it here. That's not a cop-out. Almost the entirety of chapter 14, if you've read ahead, is about prophecy. So we're going to get to it soon enough. You're not going to come and we're just going to skip chapter 14 or something like that. We're going to actually deal with it. But that is not Paul's point here in terms of defining what prophecy is or isn't or whether it a, 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 exists today. Uh, so I'm not going to make that my point. We'll get to it in chapter 14. What about teachers? Teachers are, are probably these people who are functioning within the context of a local church. Uh, in fact, a lot of scholars have su- suggested that what's happening here in uh, this particular verse, what's happening with the uh, enumeration in the list that he says first apostles, uh, then uh, prophets, then teachers, what uh, a lot of people have suggested is that the reason that he does that isn't uh, necessarily just about their importance, but rather it's a reflection of their universality. That the apostolic uh, gifting, the apostolic office would have been universal. Every church in the world was subject to their authority and gifting. In fact, that's true today because every church in the world is subject to the scriptures. Now, on the other hand, you have prophets. And prophets didn't have this sort of universal authority. They had more kind of a 
a general authority in a particular region. So their authority would have been limited to a particular area or region. And then teachers typically would have been confined to a particular church, right? So a lot of scholars say that's what's happening there in that list. It's kind of moving from universality down to particularity. And then after these three roles or responsibilities of apostles, prophets, and uh, teachers, Paul's going to mention a handful of ministries or gifts, miracles, gifts of healing, helping, uh, etc. The types of gifts that he mentions are, again, are pretty diverse from what's really miraculous to what is somewhat uh, generally mundane. And again, I think that's the point. The point that Paul's making here is to illustrate this broad spectrum of gifts in contrast to the Corinthian sort of obsession with a uh, a particular type of gift that they see uh, as more miraculous and more central or whatever uh, it might be. And so again, in chapter 14, we're going to deal in detail with questions like what prophecy and tongues entailed, whether they're valid for today. But today, I just want to remain tethered to Paul's sort of overarching point here, which is that the whole range or spectrum of spiritual gifts are necessary. And that God has uh, wired and equipped you in order to, that you might encourage that you might edify, that you might serve, that you might love others. And any way that you do that, in a sense, is a gift in the biblical sense of the term. You don't need a title. You don't need a miraculous manifestation. You don't need some sort of formal ministry. In a sense, as the great prophet John Lennon said, all you need is love. Right? In fact, that's what chapter 13 is going to be all about. The passage that you hear at every wedding you've ever been to is about the centrality of love. You don't need a stage. You don't need a name tag. You don't need recognition. You just need love, actual love for the church body. Let's keep going. Verses 29 through 30. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? So this is just a natural implication. If you've been following along with the flow of chapter 12, if the church is a body, and that body is composed of many members, and those many members have different gifts, then we shouldn't expect all of the members to have the same gifts. Right? What a hideous body that would be if all the members just function in the exact same way. When I was growing up, my parents always said, I don't know if they meant this as an encouragement or they meant this as a rebuke, but they always said that our family couldn't have survived having two Brads, that's my older brother, or two Brits, that's my younger sister. I would cut them off there, but then they would continue and say, or two Jeffs. Well, likewise, the same is true in the spiritual family, right? We're, we're different, and that's a good thing. Not everyone is an apostle. Not everyone is a prophet. Not everyone is a teacher. Not everyone has a miraculous gift. By the way, this is a really helpful verse to disprove if you're familiar with Pentecostal theology. If you're not familiar with Pentecostal theology, go back and listen to the, uh, the modern, modern charismatic movement, theological equipping that Zach did a few weeks back. This is a really helpful verse to disprove Pentecostal theology because Pentecostal theology claims that uh, only some are baptized in the Spirit, and if you're baptized in the Spirit, the sure sign is that you speak in tongues. Well, in contrast to that, last week we actually read that all Christians have been baptized in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. Notice that. We, that is all Christians, 
were baptized into one body by the Spirit. Do we believe in the baptism of the Spirit? Yes, absolutely. Do we believe that that is some sort of experience that only some Christians have subsequent to salvation that is evidenced by tongues? Absolutely not. To be baptized in the Spirit in the mind of Paul, which is what we should believe, what Paul believes, to be baptized in the Spirit in the mind of Paul just means to be regenerated. It means to be united to Christ. It means to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that's happened to every single Christian. And yet not all speak in tongues, not all have the gifts of healing. In other words, Paul says the exact opposite of Pentecostal theology. Now obviously Paul's point here isn't to disprove Pentecostalism. That doesn't exist at this point of time. His point is simply to show the implications of what he's already said in chapter 12. If you've been following his point through chapter 12, then you'll see the expected answer to each of these questions is no. They're all rhetorical questions. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Let's keep going. Verse 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Notice I said earlier that no gifts are indispensable, but that some are greater, at least in a sense. This is where you begin to see that idea develop. Paul in fact, says that we are to earnestly desire the higher gifts. The word for desire is where we get the English word zealous. Be zealous for the gifts. Be eager for them. Pursue them. And if you're a Corinthian, if you've not really been paying attention to what Paul's been saying, you might assume that the higher gifts are things like tongues and prophecy and healing. Maybe you think that greater or higher means more miraculous, more supernatural. That's not where he goes. He speaks of a still more excellent way. We'll get to that next week as we get into chapter 13. What is that more excellent way? What defines the higher gifts? Love. That's Paul's answer. Love is the demonstration of the higher gift. Love is the attribute that distinguishes the higher gifts. It's the still more excellent way. It's what fuels and empowers all of the gifts. It's what takes all of these diverse giftings and uses them to build up the corporate body. You might think of it as the sinews or the the muscles or something like that that helps connect all the various members of the body so that it might actually function. So Paul's point is that the members of the body exist for the flourishing not of that individual member but rather for the body itself. So that which uh, edifies the body is an exemplification of love and we'll talk about that next week. For now, I want to uh, wrap up this text by talking about one little idea that I see in the text, and that idea just happens to be the idea that has changed my life more than anything, uh, more than anything else. Uh, I, I want to do it by talking about a, a guy named John Piper. John Piper is probably the pastor who has m- most exerted the uh, influence, uh, positive influence on my thinking about what it means to be a Christian and a pastor. And uh, so I've read just about everything he's written. I've listened to a lot of his sermons. Um, and, uh, and so about 21 years ago, he preached what's now become a, a really famous sermon. It's called a seashells uh, sermon, if you've heard of that. And in it, he said this, this two paragraphs. I don't have it on the screen, so you'll just have to listen. Um, I won't do a Piper. If it was Tim, he'd probably do a Piper impression, but I, I can't. So He says, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. 
but you do have to know the, f- uh, the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries and into eternity, you don't have to have a high, a high IQ or a high EQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You just have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire by them. That was Piper. Now here's me. One little idea in the the kind of vein of thought that uh, Piper articulates there. One idea that has changed my life more than anything else. One little idea that has helped me to mortify to a greater degree than ever before lust and fear and a million other sins. This one idea is this, that God is a sovereign and good father who gives good gifts. In fact, I would say all of your anxieties, all of your fears, all of your jealousy, all of your self-pity, all of your depression, all of that boils down to a failure to believe two truths, that God is overwhelmingly good and that God is absolutely sovereign. That's it. What does that have to do with 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 31? Because when it comes to the gifts, any despair that you have, any jealousy that you don't have this particular gift or that particular opportunity, or any pride that you have in what you do have or what you get to do, all of that is a reflection of a denial of the sovereignty and goodness of God. Ultimately, what the Corinthians were doing is they were failing to believe that God is a good father who gives good gifts, that he's omnipotent and that he's omnibenevolent, that he's all-powerful and that he's all-good. You think in those moments of anxiety, in those moments of fear, whatever it might be, in those moments of of depression or self-pity or pride or whatever, you think that God has forgotten you or that you've earned something on your own. But in contrast to that, when you are captivated by the benevolence and the omnipotence and providence of God, your life is fundamentally changed and you're free. That's the foundation for freedom that enables you to love and serve others as you have been loved and served. What does it look like to love others? We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray to that end. Father, I thank you that you are, even when I don't acknowledge it, you're sovereign and you're good. I confess that, that my fears, my anxieties, my pride, my lust, my greed, my whatever it might be, all of that boils down to a, um, a, a difficulty in believing that you can help me or that you will help me. And so I pray for us as a people that we might um, look at our gifts through this prism and that we might see our gifts as opportunities not for us to be great, but for your greatness to be enjoyed and glorified. And so we love you and pray that you would help us to love you more because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name, amen.